Amen. So good morning. Thank you, Jonathan. Uh, my name is Drew Bennett, one of the pastors here as well at Redeemer City. It's good to see you this morning. And for those of you who are watching from home, uh, we miss you and I'm uh, glad that you've joined us. We're continuing a series just going through some of the stories that are pretty foundational to this time of year in Luke's gospel, uh, what would they call the infancy narratives. And so we've come this morning to the continuation of Mary's story as she um, really works out in her life the news the angels brought to her. And so you'll see there we're going to read from various selections in the rest of uh, the first chapter of Luke's gospel. It'll be kind of hard to follow along, so it's printed for you in your worship folder. It'll also be on the screen behind me or on your screen at home as we read together. Uh, and this is uh, my favorite part of the story. I love this. I love what happens here. So let's read, uh, beginning in verse 39 of chapter 1. If you follow along there, hear God's word. <clears throat> in those days, Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country to a town in Judah, and she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit, and she exclaimed, with a loud cry, blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me, that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leapt, leapt with joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken from her to, to her from the Lord. And Mary said, or it would be better to say Mary began to sing, my soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed, for he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation, and he has shown strength with his arm. And then verse 56, and Mary remained with her, with Elizabeth, about three months and returned to her home. Now the time came for Elizabeth to give birth, and she bore a son. And her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown great mercy to her, and they rejoiced with her. Verse 67, and his father, Zechariah, was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, and he began to sing, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High. For you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people and the forgiveness of their sins, because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high, to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. This is the word of the Lord. Every year as we remember these stories, <clears throat> excuse me, I'm always confronted by the same worry. Uh, and the worry is that we do not feel as we should, that I do not feel as I should. And that might sound strange coming from a Presbyterian pastor, but nevertheless, it's something that I think a lot about. And it's the story of John the Baptist leaping for joy in Elizabeth's womb that gets me every time. Mary goes to visit her cousin Elizabeth, and she was not even in the room yet. She just called out from, you know, outside of the door and the the, the, the baby John, excuse me, I got caught up there. The baby John in Elizabeth's womb began to leap for joy just at the sound of Mary's voice. It was so pure. It was so automatic, his joy, that I marvel at it. I just marvel at it. I really do. 
Uh, in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, C.S. Lewis must have had this in mind when he, he talked about when Mr. Beaver first spoke Aslan's name to the children. And though they did not know him well, and though they had never heard of him and never met him, it, it says there in the book that they all, as soon as his name was spoken, they all immediately felt different than they did before. At just the mention of his name, Edmund felt a sudden sense of horror. Peter felt brave and adventurous. Susan felt something that reminded her of music, Lewis writes. And Lucy, of course, Lucy had the same feeling that you get during the holidays or at the start of summer vacation from school. Something happened to them just at the mere mention of his name. Now, uh, you, you might feel something different at the mention of Jesus' name or at the reading of these stories. But here's the danger, I think, to feel nothing. That's a sign of spiritual sickness. It means your heart is hard. And the, the prophet Ezekiel talked about this. He talked about the difference between a, a heart of stone and a heart of flesh. A heart that's soft, that, that the word can penetrate. And, and God, the prophet, prophesied and promised would take out that un, old, unfeeling heart and replace it with one that feels. That that would be part of the work of the Holy Spirit as the Spirit comes in the New Testament age. Now, the Advent theme for today is joy. And births are typically occasions for great joy. Because, of course, they signal the, the beginning of something new. They hold so much promise for the future. And so, even more so, the birth of Jesus Christ. And so the prophet said, we read... You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoils. For, because, unto us a child is born, and so forth. And think about those images there in Isaiah chapter 9. I mean, the strawberry festival in Plant City and the fairs that used to be more numerous than they are now. These things are remnants of the harvest celebrations that were so important to previous generations because there was this instinctual understanding that when the harvest came in, when, when, you know, when all that you'd been worrying about and laboring in happened, then you threw a party. I mean, when Florida State won the national championship in 1993, I was a senior in high school. We watched it at my dad's house, and I remember when the field goal went wide left, uh, Nebraska's field goal, I ran outside yelling and screaming, and I jumped in the pool with my clothes on. I did. Because, because you know, I had been a Seminole fan all of my life. And, and it's funny, that's the kind of joy that we should feel. Actually, actually, probably even more than that, Peter calls it inexpressible joy. And so the stories in Luke chapter 1 and 2 are so full of joy. So what I want you to see, I mean, really, if you read it, you, you, can't, you can't unsee it. There's so much joy here, and because there's joy, there's just doxology and blessing everywhere you look. Doxology and blessing. Everyone's going around. And, and doxology is joy expressed vertically. It's joy in God directed to God. There's so much singing. There's so much song. There's so much, there's so much theology put to music and, and poetry. Mary sings, my soul magnifies the Lord, <clears throat> and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. Zechariah sings. The angels sing. In the Psalms, even the earth sings. Let heaven and nature sing, Right? But not only doxology, blessing, and blessing is joy expressed horizontally. It's joy in others directed to others. So Elizabeth greets Mary with blessing. You see that? Verse 42, blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. Zechariah gushes over John. 
his long-awaited son, Simeon rejoices. He rejoiced over the families that came to present Jesus in the temple. And so there, you just get all of these examples of doxology and blessing, doxology and blessing. And so a joyful life of doxology and blessing. That's the way I want to live my life. Anybody else? But it's not the way I live my life. Because I don't feel as I should. I mean, even when I read these texts or gather with my family during our Advent at the table times, I'm not moved the way the people in these stories seem so easily moved. And that's something I want to talk about this morning and ask this question, what about you? What about you? Do you feel the way that you should? And if not, I want to suggest there are three reasons, there's probably many, but from these texts, at least three reasons that we can talk about this morning, three reasons that we don't feel the way that we should, and then three spiritual disciplines that are offered to us that might help. And here are the three reasons. If you don't feel the way that you should, it could be, first, that you're trying to go at it alone. And the spiritual discipline would be the discipline of community to counteract that. Secondly, it might be, if you don't feel the way that you should, that you're not putting your theology to work. And so the spiritual discipline there would be to be um, singing and rejoicing and beholding. And then thirdly, it might be that if you're not feeling the way that you should that uh, what might be happening to you is you might be forgetting the grace of it all. And in that case, the spiritual discipline is to, be full, is to be full of song, is to be rejoicing as you're singing the way the people in these stories are singing. And so I want to talk about each of those for just a minute as we walk through the text, just to really diagnose our own hearts and think about ways that we might believe more deeply and repent more thoroughly uh, in light of what we see here, okay? So the first reason that we could talk about this morning why it could be that we don't feel the way that we should with the kind of joy that we should is because we're trying to do it all alone. The spiritual discipline of community. Joy is a community project. Joy is a community project. Uh, so let me show you this. When Mary was told by the angel Gabriel about the baby that would be born to her, she was immediately obedient. We saw that last week. But she didn't sing. Her song didn't come until she first went to visit Elizabeth. And it was on that visit that John, in Elizabeth's womb, as we've seen, began to leap with joy, which filled Elizabeth with, with exclamations, and Elizabeth began to erupt with joy in doxology and blessing towards Mary, and it was Elizabeth's joy that was the cause of Mary's joy. So you see how this works? It was like a chain reaction of joy that happened in the story, and that is the way that joy works. C.S. Lewis said that it's like catching an infection. Isn't that an apropos analogy for these days? I mean, I'm assuming that's why the first seven rows on both sides are pretty much empty. I promise, I don't have corona. You guys can, like, get a little closer if you want. But if it, it, Lewis said this. He said, if you want to get warm, you have to stand near the fire. If you want to get wet, you have to sit in the splash zone at SeaWorld, right? I mean, if you want joy, he said, you have to get close to, listen to this, or even into the thing that has the joy you're looking for. He said that this joy is that something that first existed between the persons of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, from all eternity. That every other joy is actually the echo of God's joy in himself. That at the center of all reality is the Trinitarian life of God, this great fountain of energy and beauty and, and joy and rejoicing that's spilling over into everything that God has made. And the only way to get the joy is to get near to or to get even into that fountain, to get 
near or into the Trinitarian life of God. And when you become a Christian, that's exactly what happens. What, what we're told in the Bible is that it, when you believe, you are united to Jesus Christ by faith, and so you are brought into the inner life of God. But God is a community of persons. And so that means that the only way to experience God's inner life of joy and beauty and rejoicing is to experience it day by day in community with other people who've also been united to Jesus by faith and are also being brought into that inner, that inner reality of the Trinity. Now, I've used C.S. Lewis's analogy before. I thought it might be helpful to trot it out again because it's, again, so apropos to what we're currently enduring. But the evidence is mounting that the isolation that we've experienced over these months might be necessary for our physical health, but it is devastating to our emotional and spiritual well-being. We simply are not made to be away from one another. Eternal life, the life of God, joy and peace and happiness and power is something that you have to catch. You have to be infected by it. And you have to be infected by it over and over and over again. There's no such thing as Christianity without community. Because God is a community of persons. And so if you do not feel as you should, one thing to consider is, are you trying to do it alone? Now, it's an overused analogy, okay? But I'm going to use it anyway. And you know this. If you take a piece of charcoal and, put it, uh, and, and try to put fire to it, it will burn for a minute, but eventually the flame will die out. But if you, if you, if you do grilling, if you know this, you know, if you stack a bunch of charcoal on top of one another and give it room to breathe, then once it's lit, the flame won't go out, you know, because all of the different pieces keep the others lit. Now, of course, if you go into the fire and take one piece out and put it to the side, then it, it will start to, start to cool almost as soon as you do that. Almost immediately it will begin to cool. But if you take it and you put it back into the bunch, it's going to catch fire again. That's the way it works with us. Until heaven. Until heaven, when we will truly dwell with God again and his glory will be the light that we walk by, the way you get near or into God's joy is to get near or better to get into the joy of God's people. And so the discipline of community is the way you fight for this. And that's, I mean by that, this intentional moving towards others and committing to being present with them and to be, and to be living alongside of one another. And I know it's hard. I know how hard that is in the moment. But here's what I want to say to you. Whether you're here in the room or whether you're watching at home, I, I, pastorally I feel the burden of this that we, we've got, I know how hard this is, but we have got to show more intent, more resolve, more creativeness towards these goals, not less, given the situation that we're currently in. Because you don't just catch joy from others, you also sustain your joy by sharing it with others. Joy is incomplete until you share it with somebody. We know this, right? This is one of the powerful reasons that, that Facebook has taken off the way that it is, is because people, there's something about the experience of something wonderful or beautiful in your life that is incomplete until you're able to share it with somebody. And so the part of the text that stood out to me the most this time around was verse 58. If you see there, it says that after all of those years of waiting, Elizabeth finally gave birth to a son, and I just was stopped in my tracks by this verse. It says, and her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown great mercy to her, and they rejoiced with her. Isn't that great? What a great gift. Do you know what a gift you give to someone when you, re when you rejoice with them? 
when you cheer for them and you celebrate when good stuff happens in their life, even if bad things are happening to you? Do you know what a great sadness you cause when you don't? When you let envy and jealousy and competitiveness get in the way and you refuse to rejoice with those who are rejoicing, let's not do that to one another. Let's fight for one another's joy because joy is a community project, right? Second, second reason that we might not feel as we should, we might not have the joy that we should as we interact with these texts, not only that we might be going at it alone, but it might be that we're not putting our theology to work. Our, our knowing hasn't translated into feeling, into affections. Jonathan Edwards said that the principal reality of, of Christianity, of spiritual, you know, spiritual uh, truth is, is affections. Spiritual reality that sits upon your heart. And the spiritual discipline here is to behold. Now, there are really two songs that make up this part of this text in Luke chapter 1. There's Mary's song and then there's Zechariah's song, but we're trying to not be in the room for, you know, an hour and a half, and we could be here all morning if we tried to w- walk through all that is said in those two songs. There's just too much, and so let's condense it down to these two main themes. If you want to say, what's the theology of these songs, they, the, the two are really singing about these two things. They're singing about the strength of God's arm, and they're singing about the tender mercy of his heart, his greatness and his goodness. And so look there, first, the strength of his arm. Let's just pick a few verses to show you. Verse 49, Mary sings, He who is mighty has done great things for me. And mighty there is a word that describes God's power. And it says God's power does mega things. That's what the, that's what the language means. His power speaks galaxies into being. He gives life to barren wombs. The Savior is born to a virgin. Verse 51, he has shown strength with his arm. And that's the theology of Christmas. Remember last week we said nothing will be impossible with God. We talked about that at great length last week. Heaven and earth are now intermingling in the person of Jesus. The natural world then is supernatural. And God is still doing mega things. Do you believe that? Hello, you awake? God is still doing mega things. Every day. But not just the strength of his arm, look also that they talk about the tender mercy of his heart. I mean, the word mercy dominates these two songs. You see it in verse 50, verse 72, verse 78. And so this too is the theology of Christmas. That as Zechariah sings about John and his role in heralding the coming Messiah, he says, verse 78, that it's all, everything that they are celebrating, everything that's happening, all of, all of the momentum of heaven toward earth in these texts is because of the tender mercy of our God. And so Christmas means that God has looked and seen us, verse 48, that he's drawn near to be with us in all of our fear and sadness, verse 68, to help us, to redeem us, to rescue us from our enemies, to forgive our sins, to light up our darkness. And all of that, all of that is rooted in his heart and how full of mercy it is, tender mercy. As the Apostle Paul calls God, the father of mercies, plural. God is full of mercy, and so life is full of mercies. Dane Ortland wrote about this. He said, just as a father begets children who reflect who he is, the divine father begets mercies that reflect him. There's a family resemblance between the father and mercy. I like that. And he quotes Thomas Goodwin, who says, God has a multitude of all kinds of mercies. There is no sin, but God has a mercy for it. There are a variety of miseries which we are subject to 
As there are, so he has in himself a shop, a treasury of all sorts of mercies, as large and as various as our once are, so large and various are his mercies. The tender mercy of God. Um, one thing that you can see there in verse 78 when he says, because of the tender mercy of God, whereby, he says, the sunrise shall visit us from on high. And that's a really interesting phrase. And if you have an older translation of the Bible, it, it says something like, whereby the day spring, it's a word that, that uh, is translated different ways, but it's translated in other translations, whereby the day spring shall visit us from on high. And I really like that. Because when you think about the day spring, in other words, he's not just talking about the sunrise here, but the primordial source of the sunrise. God, in other words, it's not just that the sun's going to come up, but that God himself, who calls forth the sun each morning, is going to rise upon our lives. So it's not just a change of circumstances, night becoming day, but it's God himself coming and intervening and in, in, in making himself known and bringing light to those who are in darkness and guiding us in the way of shalom. And so when you're in the dark, you're stuck with the what and the why question, excuse me, the what and the why questions. But when the who, but when the who of God's character begins to dawn on you, it pushes out those other questions the way the sun coming up with the, over the horizon pushes out the night. That's what he's saying there. God's strength assures us that he can do anything. His mercy reminds us that through and underneath and fueling all that washes into our lives, great and small, is his heart. So it's not enough just to know, that, that know, know all this. You have to put it to work. I learned this from Martin Lloyd-Jones. He said that faith doesn't act automatically. He said you can believe something to be true and then not live as, it's tr as if it's true. I mean, you can, you can say, okay, I, yeah, I, I agree with all that you've said. God is great and he's good. He, his arm is strong and his heart is true, but then not feel according to that truth. And what you've got to do, Lloyd-Jones said, is what the, the, the piece you're missing is you're not activating faith. And you do that by first refusing to let your external circumstances or your internal emotions control you, but instead you remind yourself of what you believe and what you know, and you over and over again rehearse these things in your heart and in your mind until you start to feel and act according to what you believe. And this is where the discipline of beholding comes in. Did you notice as we read how often that word is repeated? It's, all, it's just all over the place in Luke chapter 1 and 2. It's a dominant theme, and it means something like, wake up, pay attention, don't be lazy with what I'm about to say, don't miss it, open your ears and open your heart, focus. And it's interesting, to Mary, the angel Gabriel says, don't be afraid, Mary. This is verse 30 of chapter 1. You found favor with God, behold, and the angels, to the shepherds, it's the same thing. They say, do not fear, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy. And so the way out of fear is to behold, to stop focusing on what's making you so afraid and intentionally turn your mind and your heart, turn your focus and your attention to the truth, the truth about God's power and about his heart. And it's that truth as you turn to it that can make you unafraid. And this is the great struggle during Advent at the table in the Bennett house. To stay focused. Anybody else there? Hey, I'm, I'm doing this the whole time, right? Like, yo, hey. Because we're picking berries off the, you know, the Advent wreath. And we're, <laughs> I have a few ADD children, I suppose. And I myself can be that way. And so it takes practice. It takes practice to behold. But if we're going to begin to feel as we should, we have to learn in the discipline of beholding.
of paying attention. But thirdly, because we need to come to a close, third and the last reason that maybe we don't feel as we should and don't possess the joy that we should is because we've forgotten the grace of it all. And the spiritual discipline here is to sing. And so look here, Mary saying, my soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. She's overwhelmed by God's mega greatness. And that is the cause of her joy. But the two lines there are a pair, verses 46 and 47. So as God is magnified, joy is magnified. Right? So if, if, if you're lacking joy, it's because something about the character of God is still lagging in your heart. As God is magnified, joy is magnified. So we're left with the question, what has caused Mary's soul to be magnifying God? And I think the answer is the surprise of it all. The grace of it all. The grace of what's happening to her. You see it in the very next verse. She says... For he has looked upon the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed. She's just astounded by this. I mean, when the angel Gabriel first appeared to her, he said, Greetings, O favored one. And Mary was troubled by the saying. She was turned upside down by it. Grace to you, O graced one, is how it reads in the original language. And so it was the grace of it all that overwhelmed her, that troubled her so, that it was all God's doing, that it was his initiative, that none of it was deserved, that it was not even possible apart from God's supernatural intervention. Grace magnifies God, which magnifies joy. Uh, I, haven't, <clears throat> I haven't told this story in a while, uh, so it'll be new to some of you, but, but um, years ago, gosh, thir- 13, 14, even before we started the church, my sister uh, and her husband uh, we, had had, we had a family gathering. It was Father's Day or Mother's Day, sometime around there. And uh, my sister and her husband uh, had been struggling with uh, infertility for many, many years. They, they'd had mu- a much more difficult time than Ashley and I did getting pregnant. And so by the time that, that we got the news that she was expecting, we already had three kids. And, uh, and it was around Mother's Day or Father's Day. And so we made a video. We thought it would be fun. We made a video with pictures, kind of a collage of pictures of all of the grandchildren and then the video ended with a, 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 a image, you know, a video of the sonogram showing the new baby, and uh, then it ended with a blank screen that just asked the question, "Are you ready for grandbaby number four? And then it ended, or it kind of paused. And of course, everybody assumed that Ashley was pregnant, right? My dad was there, all my grandparents were there, and my grandmother, not Anne, who many of you know, but my my dad's mother who was a little ornery, as we would say. She's sitting right next to Ashley and I, and she kind of turned to us and looked at us and was like, again? I mean, it was kind of like, the whole room was kind of like, of course, of course. I mean, you know, the room, let's just say the room was underwhelmed. But then the video came back on after a few seconds, and you saw Leslie's face in the room, and all of a sudden, it, it was, you know, everybody realized, oh, it's Leslie that's pregnant and not Ashley, and then all of a sudden, the room's like celebrating and full of joy and so excited, and I was offended, right? Like, what's the deal? They're screaming and hugging and celebrating. Why? Because Leslie's the favored child? Listen, I have systematically made sure throughout my life that that is not the case. No. No, it was because it was such a surprise. See? Because, of course, Ashley and I would be pregnant again. We had three kids in five years. But Leslie and Maddie, they had been waiting for so long, and we'd prayed, and we'd cried, and we didn't know if it would ever happen. 
and then it happened. And there was so much grace. And the grace, the grace of it is what caused the joy. So Tim Keller in his uh, little book, Hidden Christmas, which is really great, he writes this. He says, if you think that Christianity is mainly going to church and believing a certain creed and living a certain kind of life, then there will be no note of wonder and surprise about the fact that you're a believer. If someone asks you, are you a Christian? You'll say, of course, of course I am. It's hard work, but I'm doing it. I'm making it. Christianity in this view is something done by you. And so there's no astonishment about being a Christian. However, if Christianity is something done for you and to you and in you, then there's a note of constant surprise and wonder. He has done it. And so if somebody asks you if you're a Christian, you should say, not, you should never say, of course. Listen to this. There should be no of courseness about it. It would be more appropriate to say, yes, I am. And that's a miracle. Me, a Christian. Who would have ever thought it? And yet he did it, and I'm his. See, religion is the enemy of joy. If you don't feel the way that you should, it might be that you've forgotten that Christianity is gospel, not religion. That in Christianity, you don't find favor with God by being strong or good, but by being graced. I mean, what's happening here? What is this all about? God is coming into the world in the person of Jesus Christ to do for us what we could never do on our own. It is a gift given to the least deserving, not the most deserving, to the least likely candidates. And that's why Mary's so turned upside down by it. She's overwhelmed by the surprise of it all, the grace of it all. But what about you? You know, the angel didn't come and say, Mary, I've got a job for you. And if you say yes, if you're obedient, and if you prove yourself worthy, then God will favor you for the rest of your life. No, he said, greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. At the very beginning, before she said yes, she was already favored because that's the way it works in Christianity. It's gospel, not religion. And a gospel person, not just a religious person, they're in a constant state of shock. They're never far from astonishment. They know they've been graced. And so gratitude and graciousness, doxology, and blessing pour out of them. They sing their way through life. And Luke 1 and 2 are full of songs, and that's significant. Poetry. Because sometimes the truth is too beautiful, and too wonderful, and too significant to just be spoken. It needs to be sung. So consider the spiritual discipline of singing if you don't feel the way you should. And I know it's hard. It takes some effort, doesn't it? Because uh, singing requires something more of you. It's not just a response to what you're feeling. It's a spiritual discipline. It's what you do when you're not feeling what you should be feeling. Because sometimes you sing because you're full of joy, and then sometimes you sing your way to joy. And when you sing, it gets your heart going. It unlocks something inside of you. So sing, as awkward as it might be. Sing. Do Advent around the table and sing. Sing the blessing at the, at the family Christmas gathering, sing, do all that you can to put a song in your heart. You know, our struggle with joy is really an Advent problem, and by that I mean Advent is the time when we're meant to enter into the space between the present and the future, who we are and who we are becoming, the emptiness and the barrenness and the longing and the tension that we all live with between the way things are and the way they ought to be, the way they will be. You know, we sing joy to the world. I think we're going to sing it here at the end of the service. We sing joy to the world at Christmas time, and it's a, it's a jarring song for me. It's a, it's a demanding song for me because it's just calling forth joy from us. And most of the time, just to be honest with you, I experience dissonance and not resonance with the lyrics and the melody in my own heart. Except on Christmas Eve, 
At the very end of the Christmas Eve service every year, for whatever reason, I've been able to work my way too, and there's the anticipation, you know, that's just probably one of the happiest, for me, it's one of the happiest moments of the entire year. Uh, but, but all the other times, all the other times, it's a much harder song for me to sing, but I wonder, have you ever considered, it's not really a song about Christmas. Isaac Watts wrote it about the second coming of Jesus. It's really about the time when, when Jesus will come again and truly reign, reign over all of the earth and there will be no more curse. And blessings will go everywhere the curse was. And what, what we're told is when Jesus comes again, all the tears sown in this life will become joy harvested. But until then, until then we fight together for joy. First Peter 1 Peter 1.8, we rejoice with joy. It's an interesting phrase. It means we, to rouse yourself with joy, to put the disciplines to work. You know, you can't make yourself feel joy, but you can make yourself rejoice. And when you do, it's full of glory. That means God is worth it. He truly is. But it requires something from us. I mean, Christmas, it, all of this requires something from us for us to live in the kind of joy that honors and glorifies him and shows him to bring, be supremely worthy of our whole lives. It's why joy is so important. The fall is why it's so elusive. Our future makes it an absolute surety. But for now, we have to fight. And so let's fight together, amen? So pray with me if you would. So Father, now we come and we're gonna sing. And we're gonna sing this song and call ourselves to the kind of joy that is needful and necessary and that really declares your worth. And so as we come now, we need your spirit. Uh, we need your spirit so that as we sing, we don't just sing with our lips, but our hearts remain far from you, but that our hearts be engaged and that we really do uh, in this moment enter into and, 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 and acknowledge that though the joy that the song ultimately speaks of is still out in front of us the king has come and right now knees are bowing and tongues are confessing and the blessing the blessing that flows from the death of Jesus Christ upon the cross is like a mighty river that is going out into the earth and one day it will flood the entire earth and the earth will be covered with water well excuse me the earth will be covered with the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the seas but until that day, we sing as an exile people, we sing in anticipation, not necessarily because we feel it all, but in, in anticipation of the great joy that we are. Because Lord Jesus, you have come, you are the great King. So help us to receive you with joy. Looking forward to the day when you come again, when everything sad will come untrue and every tear will be wiped away and there will be nothing but joy for us. So this is the song of a pilgrim people as we make our way through this Advent time, through this Advent world. Make it so in us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Perhaps, perhaps that's the thing about singing, uh, that there is a vulnerability to it. Not only is it, it just requires more of us, but it, the act of it does exactly that last line of that hymn. It opens our hearts before him, unfolding us, right? unwrapping us from kind of the way that we can clinch and, and hold ourselves off. There's a scene in, in the Gospels where Jesus, the king, is coming into the city and they're hailing him and the religious leaders are not taking part in the joy and they say, keep your disciples quiet. And Jesus says, listen, here's the problem. If I tell them to be quiet, the rocks are going to start calling out. <laughs> because the earth 
knows. The earth knows the way that the king's coming should be received with joy. And so you may feel very, uh, you may feel very rock-like. If Jesus can make the rocks to sing, then he can work in your heart, however hard it might be to cause you to sing too, if you would open yourself to him, right? But the courage to do that comes from knowing the truth of these words. And so receive this benediction that because of all that Jesus has done for you, this is the promise that you can now go and live from, that the Lord has turned his face towards you like this. So may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you his peace, both now and forevermore, as you go in his peace. Amen. God bless you. See you Christmas Eve, Lord willing.